0: Welcome to The Sages Among Us. What makes a community great? Most importantly, it's the people who live and work there and are engaged in community life. The Sages Among Us focuses on those people, what they do, and why they do it, and celebrates the leadership, time, and energy they bring to making a positive difference for all of us.
1: I'm Lori Burkhardt-Frank. And I'm very pleased to introduce you to my guest tonight, Karen Packard, a positive, healing, and energetic leader. She is an ordained clergy specifically for ministry in the hospital setting. She has sailed internationally over 10,000 miles in her sailboat, spent time all over the world, and is currently president of Hospice at the Foothills. Karen, welcome to The Sages Among Us. Thanks so much, Laurie. I'm happy to be with you. Well, really happy to have you here. And we always like to get a little bit of background before we... Uh, get into what you're currently involved in. And I'd love to know, are you a California girl or did you grow up somewhere else? Well,
0: I was born in Oxnard. (laughs) (laughs) You are a California girl. Yeah, I was born in Oxnard. My dad was a builder and we, in my young life, lived all around Southern California and out in the desert. Um, Then I went to Hawaii when I was 18 and stayed there until... Um, my husband died, and I came to finish my training at Loma Linda.
1: So you, and I never you started, went back. You, I've been in California again ever since then. You, well, ever since then, except for some of these travels we're going to have to get to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, those little things. Yeah. <laughs> when you were growing up, uh, who were some of your role model models?
0: When I think of that question, the first thing that comes to my mind is teachers, Um, I never spent more than six months in a school um, until after I graduated from high school. And so, you know, anyone who's done a lot of moving around knows that you're distinctly at a disadvantage for your learning. And I had so many wonderful teachers who quickly assessed me and gave me work that kept me interested started me reading really young, um, made sure I wasn't bored, uh, gave me chores to do, you know, so that I could feel like I belonged. So those teachers made a huge difference um, in who I was and in how I was encountering those insecure times.
1: Yeah, that must have been a, a challenge to move to so many different schools uh, as a young person.
0: It was. Um I was, uh, I sang really early. I was a, um, sang on stage as a very small girl and all the way, you know, up until my fifties. And that helped me too, because when I came, I did something other people didn't. And it gave me a little way to feel special. You couldn't get, you know, class jobs and things if you were only there such a short time. But because I could sing, I, I got to do some special things.
1: You were close enough to the L.A. world, and yet you're also, we introduced you as being part of the clergy. So did you get your start in churches, or did you uh, sing uh, for um, the Hollywood world, or or how did you get involved in singing? I think,
0: uh,
1: actually, the truth is
0: I had a grandpa who was a bass at the old Baptist church across the street. And he had a brown leather stool that he would put in the middle of the living room. And he would sit in his uh, recliner and just sit there and listen as long as I wanted to sing. And he never, ever complained or (laughs) said he needed to get up or do something else. And so, you know, he's about the best audience any little kid could ever have. But I started in churches. You know, really, I think as a as a girl, um, mostly it's how how I learned scripture. You know, how I learned hymns
1: was all through singing them, rather than studying them. Well, so uh, some of your early jobs did they have to do with singing?
0: Most of my singing was for free,
1: <laughs>
0: for <laughs> until free. later on. Um, You know, the Rotary Club or the Syroptimus Club or the Malay installations or Rainbow Girls installations, wherever I happen to be. Um, My mother had dress stores in uh, Camarillo, and I started working there about sixth grade. She got sick, and my aunt and I pretty much ran those those stores. And, um, you know, I learned... To be a hard worker. I think we were taught to be hard workers. That um, you pulled your, I think my parents were proud of pulling themselves up, you know, with their bootstraps, that old expression. And um, we worked hard. We learned to do what needed to be done and not complain about it. And whereas at times that didn't feel very kind. It's done me in good stead. You know, I can't think of any job I've ever had um, that I didn't succeed because I worked hard.
1: Well, and I was going to ask you what some of the lessons you, you learned from those early jobs, but it's certainly um, the hard work um, pays off.
0: Yeah, hard work pays off. And I think another thing, um, you know, Viv Tipton, the, the executive director up at Hostess we and i spend a lot of time together and something that we both kind of have hard scrappled coming up and that idea that you don't give up that tenacity that you um if you can't make something happen one way you know think outside the box network learn listen gather and just don't say no you know if you really believe in it then make it a
1: yes. Well, that is really turning um, hard work into positive um, and, and challenging situations into into that positive, which makes you that energetic, healing, uh, inner positive leader that you are. Uh, what were some of the, I'm did you have any other earlier passions? Too, I mean, <laughs> what's that, Karen? I'm guessing you're that
0: way too, you know? <laughs> Life can be put a lot of barriers up for us, you know, and I'm just confident that the right situations and people come into our path to help us through those things and out the other side.
1: Well, you're listening to The Sages Among Us on KVMR. I'm Lori Burkhart Frank, and I'm talking to Karen Packard, who believes in the power of good, the promise of possibility, and is currently the president of Hospice of the Foothills. Karen, um, did you have other early passions besides the singing? And obviously you were working hard. Were you involved in any other activities growing up?
0: Well, you would laugh, but my father was a boat racer. And in those days, there was a really bad accident um, on the Colorado River when a driver of um, unlimited about 12 and a half foot boat um, had a stroke and lost control of his boat and it went up into the stands and killed some people. And they changed the rules so you had to have a co-driver so that there weren't, boats weren't, you know, up there with no one controlling them. So I became his co-driver. You know, I was 15 years old, didn't have a driver's license yet and weighed about 85 pounds, which made me um, a benefit. All the other people who had to add a driver to their boat had full-size men <laughs> who weighed them down in those little unlimited hydros. But I um, so I was a good co-driver and I was taught to keep my mouth shut and do what I was told to do. So I raced um, Salton Sea 500 miler and the Lake Havasu 200 miler and the Anacapa Island race and Mission Bay race, lots and lots of long, both freshwater and saltwater races with my dad.
1: Well, I'm going to add fearless to my description of you. Wow, that's something.
0: You know, not- really, Lori, it's not being fearless. I was afraid, but I never let on. Wow, yeah. that. I mean, I, I think that that's. Um, I, I didn't let on.
1: Well, now um, you did become part of the clergy and, and studied, and um, is that something that was a calling for you, or, or how did that come about?
0: Well, I went ahead with the singing and was doing the Metropolitan Opera auditions and the Maryland Opera auditions, and doing the lead in Cozy Pantute, and I married my leading man at the tenor. And we began performing together, you know, in Hawaii, not traveling away. And five years into the marriage, he got a four stage glioblastoma brain tumor. And he was a very Ukrainian, half Ukrainian man, very handsome. young and very physically fit and so he was chosen as a research patient at UCSF and he joined a research protocol and lived 62 months, which six months is the average for that. And it was that process both um, that captured my fascination with medicine, which maybe in another age would have left me being a doctor instead. I also saw the limits of medicine and the need for faith and he was a very faithful person and I learned and developed my faith through that time. We did a lot of speaking about our experience while we could and so I began studying before he even died and I was actually ordained the next year
1: after he died in 1990. Well, wow, what a tribute to to your husband and um amazing that he lived for uh, that was close to five years after the diagnosis yes. is that right
0: yeah yeah, it is it is wow I can't say that the quality of life was tremendous, but um it was he was a scientist by trade, avocation singer, vocation scientist, and being part of research was Import, an important way for him to cope with what was going on with him.
1: That's, I've got, That's boy, what, what that a blend of too. you know the opera, the singing, the um, his, as a scientist, and then uh, you becoming involved in the clergy, um, and and I know there's just more as we're going to talk about how your life continued to unfold. Uh, but once you became part of the clergy, then then where did you spend most of your career?
0: I did most of my training at Kapi'olani in Queens in Honolulu, but then I decided to be what's called a a CPE supervisor, clinical pastoral education. Um, I think maybe that love of teachers and teaching kind of captured me. And so I went to Loma Linda to finish that training and to be certified as a supervisor. And then my very first job was the director of pastoral care at Long Beach Memorial. And I was there for just shy of 20 years. And it's just, um, you know, my language, God, the putting together of all the pieces that made up me and my life into a job that had meaning every second of every day. You know, it was really hard to feel sorry for myself. When my attention was on the patients and the families, families and the staff in that big 10,000-person hospital organization.
1: Well, you had um, shared with me in, in a little bio that you have a real interest in supporting good deaths and inclusive care. So, so what inspired you to really focus on that? Is that because of your husband? and his, what he was going through. Well, I think through. that's a start. Um, his death didn't end up being the way,
0: just, it's pretty hard to imagine what your death is going to be, and people tell you how they think it's going to be, but um, it, it takes everybody pretty much by surprise. And I was involved in the very beginning. Do you remember Terry Schiavo, the Terry Schiavo case in Tallahassee, Florida? The
1: Oh, yeah. Girl who
0: had a stroke at a young age and ended up, in a persistent vegetative state for years. Out of that came the development of a document called Five Wishes. And I was involved in that process. And their company, Aging with Dignity, was right there in Tallahassee. And it was the grant he got, Jim Toomey got, um, to address this need for good end-of-life planning and decision-making. That seed was planted out of that Terry Schiavo case And the commitment we made to develop training for doctors, um, a document that could be used by ordinary people, which is now um, translated into 34 different languages. So it was that watching how people died, sometimes I'd have 10 deaths in a day in a big trauma center like that. Oh, my. And so my focus was death and all the pieces that went around it, whether it was supporting the doctors who were feeling like they were failing or the family members who were all in a different place about how much they could or should do for mom. So it was fascinating to me. It was it grabbed my heart and it grabbed my head and it still does. Uh, it's It's still the thing i I care about the most,
1: well, I have definitely heard about the five wishes, but how fascinating to know Karen that you were a part of developing that
0: That was so fortunate for me and then their current president and I traveled around and did um, what would be podcasts now, but were actual seminars for healthcare care. Uh, organizations around the country to introduce that document and get it started.
1: Well, it it does uh, all show this great path that we're going to get to about being president of hospice, uh, but I, I still want to ask you, what were some of the things you really enjoyed about the career that you had?
0: Oh, my goodness, the people. You know, it is such um, an honor, and you know this, Laura, you know it. To be let into people's lives um, at such a precious time to be, you know, accepted and included and listened to and just to be able to sit with them throughout the hours where things are unfolding. Some of those people I still keep in touch with and I have on my shelf, you know, a a small little sock. (laughs) From a little baby that was important to me, and the statue of Jesus that came from a Catholic nun, who people who changed me, you know, and maybe everybody changed me. Uh, I think there, it just was such a gift. It continues to be a gift, you know. I still see patients as a volunteer when they want a woman clergy. And I mm-hmm. take my little dog, Maxwell, for he's trained as a therapy dog, and we see patients in nursing homes and um, memory care. So I, I get to put my toe back a little bit into the patient care, and I'm so grateful for that chance.
1: Well, what a gift. Well, Karen, you did retire from, from, being, from that paid career um, before you moved on to other activities. and So when did you retire?
0: I retired in 2011.
1: And what a, a change that must have been to leave a big organization. Um, how did you embrace that change? What did you do with your life at that point?
0: <laughs> you know the answer. You're setting me <laughs> I know me up. <laughs> part of it, but I'm anxious
1: to hear more details.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, I I met someone that I um, we were thinking about getting married and uh, something that he wanted to do was um, to do offshore sailing, and he had some sailing experience. I had only powerboat experience, and so we kind of committed to doing more training. I got my ham radio license and did my medical training for, you know, intubating people and those, you know, oh, it's so many things you have to learn went for three weeks to the South Pacific on someone else's boat where we actually learned under the care of another husband and wife to prepare you for what it's really like. And then we left, we left in 2013 and we were at sea for about two and a half years and we ended up on the North Island of New Zealand um, in the Bay of Islands up there in New Zealand. And uh, then we both kind of had done as much as we wanted to do and decided to sell the boat there.
1: Well, you're listening to The Sages Among Us on KBMR. I'm Lori Burkhart-Frank, and I'm talking today to Karen Packard, currently the president of Hospice of the Foothills, who has just been telling us about traveling 10,000 miles of open sea in your sailboat. Uh, So. So, Karen, you know, one of the things that just amazes me is, you know, when you talk about the open sea uh, and being just alone, and it sounds like a nice big boat, but still, it's a little boat in a big ocean. How how did you feel about that?
0: You know, Lori, I felt a lot of different ways, you know. Um, it took us 21 days to cross from Puerto Vallarta to the Marquesas, which are kind of the closest island chain that you can engage as you, you know, cross uh, to the west like that and crossing the Pacific itself. And um, we only saw the back of one boat in 21 days. And we didn't see any fish or any, you know, Nothing else, just us out there. Oh my gosh. And something happened every day. Um, we lost our main soul. We lost our boom thing. We, you know, something happened every day. But you have no help. I mean, really, that's probably what got us in the end, the stress of that that caused us to just say, you know, uncle. Because you just have to figure out what you're going to do and you have to do it with what you have. You know, you can't run down to West Marine and get a part or call the electrician or, you know, it's just you and you're out there and you're um, fallible, you know. no, I don't think anybody ever has all the answers to all the problems they encounter. They're so unique. And that can be overwhelming. And I applaud the people who are still doing it. Some of our friends are still doing it.
1: Well, but you did it for 10,000 miles, Karen. It. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it's amazing, too. Sometimes I can't
0: even believe I did it.
1: <laughs> well, how did you end up moving to Nevada County?
0: Well, when we decided to sell the boat, I'm the only one that had a house, and my house was in Hawaii and was rented. We had nowhere to live. So I began researching house and pet sitting all over the world and just kind of set up a big spreadsheet and mapped out three years of consecutive house sits. And the second to the last one was a 40-acre ranch here looking over Englebright. And every day, these people live down John Bourne Road. Those of you from this part of the county know that, you know, that's like four miles of unimproved road to get just to that property, and every time I'd go to the store, I'd pass by a street called Wildflower, and one day, I just wanted to see what was on it, and within a matter of days, we'd put in an offer on a house on Wildflower.
1: Well, it seems like there's a lot of adventures we could talk about there, but I do want to get to uh, your work with Hospice of the Foothills. Um, yes. so I'll have to ask you some other time about all your adventures around the world uh, house and pet okay. sitting uh, it's a fun thing to learn how to do it's a wonderful way to do
0: improve on a regular vacation to actually live in a place with their car and their pets and their town and their friends and you know it's a very special way uh, to travel
1: that does sound really fascinating well so Karen um what is important to you and how you express that in your community life
0: about hospice you mean
1: well you, I mean obviously you're your're president of hospice but you know and it does seem like your career brought, brought you there but you also had yeah. the singing and probably many other interests so what 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 became important to I you think the answer, so yeah
0: it, I think the it's a broad question. But for me, it almost always boils down to people and meaningful work. You know, I was the president of the board of um, the Unitarian Church in Grass Valley before I became president of the board here. And as I reflect on those kinds of jobs that we do as a volunteer, um, relationships are a lot stronger when you're doing meaningful work together. Doesn't really matter what the task is, but there's something very enriching about solving the problem problems and being creative together. And I love the people at Hospice of the Foothills. Um, it's the most wonderful combination of people in all the disciplines. I, I wouldn't leave out one person, and the board of directors is just. Phenomenal minds and spirits you know they they're so committed to the mission of bringing compassionate care to the families and the patients here in our county and in placer county so it brings together meaningful work and really fascinating people
1: well we're we're down to our last few minutes, and I do want to ask you a little bit more about hospice. Um, but I think I'm going to move into you know some of the other activities that you're involved in because uh, I do want to have a one last question for you. But I know that there are other ways that you enjoy spending your day um, besides. And I want to. Uh, we usually end with a question on what you would do if you had a magic wand that you could wave to to improve our community. And I guess we'll leave that hanging out there and hope that we get to. To chat with Karen again someday soon. Um, Can you hear me, Lori? Oh gosh, she's back. That's wonderful. I'm back. I'm back. I'm sorry. Okay, I'm sorry. Karen. Well, we're we're going to end on that last question about what would you do if you had a magic wand to improve our community um, or to, to solve a problem or or something to create? What would you What would you focus your energy on? I think one
0: of the things that Hospice of the Foothills is committed to is education. And I think we started this off by my saying my respect for teaching and learning. I'd like the people in this county to know about hospice as a possibility in their end-of-life planning and to each family be surrounded by trustworthy people that could have those conversations with them, answer their questions, whether or not they decide to do it but that place where they can have those safe conversations about this challenging topic.
1: Well, that is, that is a beautiful uh, way to use your magic powers, but I think you're doing it in your everyday life, Karen. So uh, that, that is a, a great thing to be able to do. And my guest tonight has been Karen Packard, who believes in the power of good, the promise of possibility, and is currently the president of Hospice of the Foothills want to thank you for joining us, Karen. And the- oh, I'm so grateful that you asked me. It was nice to be with you. Well, it's great to have you. You've been listening to The Sages Among Us on KBMR. I'm Lori Burkhart Frank. Thanks for joining us, and thanks for everything that you do to make our community great.